It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, happy Rushtober. Is that what we're going with? <laughs> Trying to get that started, Rushtober? Don't they do like Rocktober? Why don't we just call it Rushtober? Sure. What about Rushtember? <laughs> Does that not work? Rushember? Is that December or September, though? Well, Rushtember would be September, and then Rushember <laughs> would be December. All right, all right. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Let him know what month should be named after Rush. (laughs) The bass intro and outro, that's Lex. And we're going to be talking about a night for Neil again today, Jer. Right. It's creeping closer, less than three weeks away. I know, I know. Getting excited. Very excited. Hope you got an email to get us started before we jump into the night for Neil talk. I sure do. This is from Mark. What's up, Mark? He says, I've been meaning to write you guys for over a year now, and I'm finally doing it. First, I just want to say thank you for the podcast and the time you devote to it. I am probably like many of your listeners and was having trouble accepting not only Neil's death, but the receding fact that the band Rush was no more. I discovered the podcast around episode 88 and have not missed one since. I'm still going backwards to catch up on all the previous episodes, kind of like R40 back in time. The podcast has given me a new light on how to enjoy the band and reflect back on how they influenced my life. I am 58 years old and my Rush origin story is very similar to many of the ones I've heard on your show. My best friend in high school had two older brothers who had a big collection of many different albums. The cover of one album, 2112, stood out to me and I pulled it out and put the needle down on the vinyl and that was it. In this collection of albums from the late 70s, it was also the only album that actually had lyrics. My appreciation of Rush began not only from the music, but all of their albums had lyrics, which I guess I'd never thought about. There's so many albums from the 70s that I had that never had any lyrics. Yeah, because people didn't care about lyrics. (laughs) Or, you know, I mean, do you really need lyrics for a Kiss album? Come on. I guess that's true, right? (laughs) It's easy to figure out. Unless you wanted to pour over the lyrics to Love Gun, trying to figure out what it's about. (laughs) From there, my fandom grew and grew. And on July 3rd, 1981, I went to my first concert, the Moving Pictures Tour at the old Met Center in Bloomington, Minnesota. It was incredible to experience that concert in person. It was life-changing, and I'm so grateful, looking back, that this was my entry point. Because of your podcast about that concert and the 40-year anniversary release, I also now have at the ready the CD from that tour. I was able to see Rush 17 times live. And I brought my son to the last two concerts and hooked him as a fan. Most of these concerts I went to with a big group of friends that all shared the love of this band over the years. One concert stood out to me the most. August 27, 2010 at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds. I believe Getty on Instagram recently posted a picture of Neil wearing his Heinz 57 t-shirt for what was his recently 57th birthday. What made this concert so special to me is that my childhood home could be seen from my seat in the grandstand across the field, and it was like Rush was playing in my front yard. How cool would that be? That would be awesome. It was the Time Machine tour and the emotion flashing back in time to my youth, and now Rush here, basically in my home, brought tears to my eyes. Once again, thanks for what you do and your shared passion for the band. It has brought me out of the slight depression from the loss of Rush and has moved me to a place of great appreciation for what this band has given me, my friends, and my son over the years. It's been one of the greatest experiences a person can have with three guys I call best friends whom I have never met. Take care, Mark. 
Awesome. Thank you, Mark, for the email. And like I always say, Jer, emails like that is what makes it so worth it for us to do this podcast. I know. It's it's great that we can entertain people even a little bit, right? Make them feel better. Yeah. And he listens to our podcast kind of like the R40 tour. That's right. Going backwards. He starts from the new stuff and then goes backwards to the beginning. I hope he doesn't get too disappointed when he gets to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe saying that will, will kind of dampen his, uh, his enthusiasm a little bit so he won't get too disappointed. Or his expectations, right? Right. There you go. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about a night for Neil tonight in a roundabout way. Today's guest is the cellist and founder of the Toronto-based Electric Strings Quartet, Deva Quartet, who will be performing at the upcoming Night for Neil Tribute Concert in St. Catharines, Ontario. That happens on Saturday, October 22nd. Liza McClellan, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Hey, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Really appreciate you being here. We'd like to start out, Liza, by asking you your Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? I grew up with it. I am a bass player's daughter. I grew up listening to well, everything. It's a very musical family. And my dad is actually a classical bass player by trade, but he started in the industry as an electric bass player. And consequently, all of his children learned to play the bass and learned to appreciate the bass. And, uh, and we also listened to a lot of hard rock, prog rock, metal, jazz, like every, every kind of music was always very important. And um, Rush was constantly being played. Now, I'm of the vintage, uh, the Power Windows vintage. So that's kind of when I came in on the scene as a young, a little young baby and grew up with that album. And so for me, that's actually my, one of my most favorite albums because it reminds me of being little. And then as I grew older, I started to get really interested in some of their uh, later stuff and then their earlier stuff, which is like the, the 2112 album or the Crest of Steel. Those are awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's where uh, Steve and I both became fans too, when we went to see Power Windows tour. Good vintage. Yeah. <laughs> so how does a young bassist transfer to the cello? Liza? Uh, well, I started officially, I started cello lessons when I was five. And that was through fr a family friend, actually, who happened to have a, a little mini cello. And she was like, well, do you think your daughter would like to learn it? And, and, uh, and I loved it. And I played my whole life. But uh, somewhere in my, my teenage years, I got really, really excited about, um, actually, it was Rush and Yes, those two bands. And, um, I almost quit cello and, and I had, I was like playing a lot of bass and I was playing in the jazz band at my high school. Um, and I almost did, I almost did become a, a bass player, but uh, actually my father talked me out of it and he's like, you, you would miss playing Brahms, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you might regret it. And I'm like, no, oh, okay. So I, I, I always kept up with cello, but um, in my heart of hearts, I do kind of consider myself a wannabe bass player. <laughs> Are there a lot of commonalities between the cello and the bass other than, you know, four strings? Sure. Actually there are. And it's, it's funny. Um, uh, if you're, if you're classically trained, a lot of the time, like if you're playing early stuff like Mozart or Beethoven, a lot of the time the cello and bass parts would be playing the same thing. 
um, but we're just kind of an octave apart. So the, the cello has a slightly higher register, but is often used as the playing bass lines, particularly if you're playing a string quartet, the, the cello would have most of the bass lines in it. Yeah, the, the biggest difference between cello and bass is, is uh, bass is tuned in fourths and the cello is tuned in fifths and just the difference in range that you would have. So bass usually just does the, the bass lines. And then if you've got an awesome solo, then you can really fly around the fingerboard and play some great stuff. And bass is so important for the ground and, and keeping the rhythm going and the feel for the song. Like a, a good bass line can make or break a song, I absolutely believe. Um, cello is nice because you can bounce between playing a melody because um, we have that higher register or you can slide low and enjoy some of that, the low grounding bass lines that we get to do too. So we, we can double up. But when I play with my electric string quartet, because I am a wannabe bass player, I'm always, I would say 90% of the time I have a bass pedal turned on so that I can I'm emulating this, that lower octave that a, an actual bass has that a cello doesn't. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Deva Quartet formed? We got together. We were like four friends that had just gotten out of school, you know, from out of university. Um, we were all playing together, working like some orchestra jobs and, you know, who let's, let's put a string quartet together. It's like, let's start a band, you know, it's the same kind of thing, but we were playing like Haydn and Mozart quartets. And, and not that we didn't love that because it's beautiful. It's some of the, the most beautiful stuff written for our instruments, honestly, but it's being done everywhere, you know, and we were kind of thinking maybe we should try and do something different. So then we kind of, we started playing like sort of jazz covers and then and then we sort of started playing some like pre-written arrangements of sort of rock and pop songs but they were really bad like <laughs> these arrangements that you buy in a, in a store tip tend to not really sound like the song like it loosely does but it's not actually a really truly the song it's like a a version of it so so i started writing our own arrangements and i, I you know i wanted to do my absolute best and my writing the best arrangements ever. I don't know, but, but I wanted to really stick with and be true to whatever song we were covering. So that's how Deva Quartet started. So we, we got into, I think the very first song that we covered was a band by a band called Muse actually. And that led to Yamaha here in Canada, finding us and saying, Hey, you're doing some really neat things. Here's some electric strings. They actually just gave them to us to play and they sponsored us, which was so cool. And that, like, that sort of opened up this whole world of string playing, particularly electric string playing, that there was nobody else doing that. So it was really exciting. And it's been a lot of work because there wasn't really anybody you could watch a video and emulate at the time. Like, we were just experimenting and playing out of various guitar amps and bass amps. And like, well, that sounded bad or, well, that was great. And, and then I started writing original music. And then here in Toronto, there's a there's a magazine called Now Magazine. They heard about what we were doing and they had that year, I think this was at this point, this is like seven years ago, something like that. They were running a best albums, top 50 albums of all time in Canada. And they were like, well, you guys, you're string players. 
clearly you should be doing the Rush 2112 album. Because <laughs> 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 they're, they're like, you, you can play this music, it's hard. And, um, and we were just so honored. It was, so we ended up, we weren't allowed to do the whole thing because obviously it's a, that's a, a little, it's a long, but we, we did the Temples of Syrings. do like the thing and they they, they made it into a, a, a really cool youtube video and because of that video a guy out in california andrew waters heard what we were doing with temples of syrinx and was like hey can you just do the whole 2112 because i really liked that and that's how the whole 2112 came to be so yeah and then we ended up doing the whole thing and it was so much work <laughs> and and you as a fan you know because it's it's one of those things like growing up as a kid you hear these albums you grow up living in this sound and it inspires you to become a musician and then you're asked to sort of do a tribute to it and cover it which was so cool and humbling right and and then um and then actually getting official permission from Rush to record it was like so amazing. And then having the chance to play it at this memorial couldn't be more special. And uh, we're absolutely honored to be doing that. What are the challenges that come with arranging rock songs? Oh, there's so many challenges. <laughs> um, the biggest one is, uh, well, there's, there's a few. Whenever I sit down to do an arrangement, you just have to kind of listen to the song like a million times. So it, it's in you. Like for me, physically, I have to really feel it because nobody's really written it down. A lot of these songs, maybe there's a, a lead chart or a chord chart that would can help you along. Sometimes there's a piano reduction or something so the pianists can lift it. But for me, one of the biggest challenges is figuring out, well, in this case, what are those notes that Alex Lifeson played in that guitar solo? Like what the heck is happening? And how do I notate that? So like sitting with my cello going, no, that's not it. Okay. I think that's half of it. <laughs> you know? And then, and then it's one thing to know how it goes in your ear, but all my school training, you know, I went to the conservatory here in Toronto and I've got a master's degree in London. All of that musical training is put to the test and like, well, how can I fit into a four, four bar? <laughs> like, I don't, okay. This is, that's for me, one of the biggest challenges is just how 
to put it down on paper so that I can deliver it to my quartet so they can read it and it makes sense and they can play it the way that it sounds in the recording. One of the things, like I said earlier, it's, it's so vitally important to me that we don't give like a, like, here's kind of how it is. We wanted to do like an actual, like absolute tribute to the album and play the solos as note by note, like as close as they could be. And sure, like Rush will go out and play it live and the solos are probably different than what they did on the album. But for us, because it was a tribute to their album, we wanted our tribute to be as close to that original incarnation as possible. So yeah, the, the challenges have been for me notating it and then figuring out how to make those sounds work on, on electric violins and cello. And there are, we have a wonderful drummer who's also like a, a major Rush nerd. And uh, he's like, when, when he found out we were doing this project, he was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I've always wanted to do this. This is so great. I air drummed this all the time. <laughs> It's like I I learned drums. This is because of Neil Peart, you know, this is amazing. So uh yeah, the whole thing has been really wonderful. And um we've all grown a lot because of the experience. And yeah, but it's it's not easy. And then of course, you know, like anybody doing a like a rock band, we don't play with the music in front of us. So everything is memorized, mm-hmm. everything is internalized. And it, I think it helps give a real authentic performance too. That was the thing that stood out to me the most is the solos are just incredible. decide which of your instruments plays the guitar part and which instrument plays the vocal melody? How do you determine that? That's a great question. Um, Because I'm the sort of the writer and the arranger and because I'm working with foreign other individuals that are excellent musicians, one of the jobs of a, I think of a, a sensitive arranger is to make sure you're not always giving the best parts to the same person. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get in trouble and they won't want to play with you anymore. So one of the things is to listen to like when I was devying up, there's a few major solos over the course of the 2112 album. And some of them are in the higher spectrum and some of them are lower. And, um, sometimes the timbre or the range that the solo is happening in would help me decide who to give that to. So basically of the four major guitar solos, um, the lowest one went to viola because that's, and she has a good growl on her sound and really, I mean, she almost sounds like a guitar in her solo. It's pretty cool. 
And then the higher solos would go to Sharon and Emily. And I tried to share those as equally as possible. Also, whenever Getty Lee is singing, often I give those melodies to either the violins, except for um, the soliloquy solo, which is so it's a little bit lower and a little more mellow. So I gave that to the cello because I felt that that was kind of more the vibe. So that's what I did for 2112. But when, when doing arrangements for anything, when we're covering a song, I try to be sensitive to the register that I'm emulating, but also to the people that I'm working with. So nobody's getting bored. Everybody's having a chance to shine. And then that it's working for the group, you know, as a whole, making sure everybody's got their, their moments. One of my favorite parts of 2112 is discovery. Yeah. Because I felt like I was hearing the guitar like for the first time. Yeah. It really was amazing just hearing the the way the guitar was brought out in contrast to the vocal melody. Can you talk a little bit about that section? I think what Rush did is so clever because they found a way to tell a really a story that resonates across time. And it's also a political statement. And they did it in such a beautiful, organic kind of way. And the discovery when, you know, Alex Lifeson's playing on the, the acoustic, he discovers the acoustic guitar and he's tuning it like there's little details that you know we were copying and in our in our cover we we it's like we're finding the violins and we're we're tuning the quartet and trying to emulate that feeling of what is this beautiful thing like what would it have been used for and like creating these beautiful sounds I think it's a 
a powerful moment in the suite and um, probably one of the more important moments actually. And, you know, for, for me trying to find a way to make the arrangement emulate what Alex Lifeson did was challenging because in the guitar part, he's able to strum and it's one instrument and you can hear these resonating chords. Not that the, the violins can't do that, but you don't have the same kind of resonance, even if we're strumming. So I was faced with making a decision, well, I'm going to have, in, in this case, I'm going to have four people plucking a string at the exact same time to try and copy the sound that Alex is able to do with one hand, one guitar, <laughs> um, to try and, and bring that moment, to, you know, give it some some space and some breath and let it resonate a bit. But yeah, it's a great moment in the suite for sure. Now, Liza, do all the other members of the quartet, are they all Rush fans or did you have to convince them to do this song? Oh, no. <laughs> Nobody had to be convinced. Everybody knows Rush. I would say I'm the biggest prog fan, mostly because it's like that was a major part of how I grew up like I used to watch band videos with my dad on like he would record them on VHS and we'd sit and watch them after school. Like that's what I did. I don't think anybody else in my band did that. Maybe, maybe Mac, the drummer would, would, I think he's probably actually more a fanboy than I am fangirl of Rush. Like he's a huge Rush fan. I think he's been to see Rush play live 11 or 12 times or something. Oh, wow. And he's younger than me. And it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. But um, I know that Sharon, Emily, and Moira actually had always known Rush, knew a few of their songs, but over the course of learning this huge suite, they all became massive fans because of the journey. And uh, when you get to know a piece of music that's so intricate and you get to know it, um, so intimately, it's kind of impossible not to become a fan because it's a beautiful piece of music. I say that with absolute confidence. I, I've studied Mahler scores. I can play Tchaikovsky. This piece of music is, is one of those things that's going to transcend time just the same way I think that like we still listen to Bach and we, I think this is going to be one of those things too because it's timeless in the sense that there's so much going on Every generation that hears it resonates with it because it's a, it's a human story. And it's, it's about things that I think, sadly, we're probably always going to be worried about somehow in the back of our human minds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think it's important. And yeah, I think, I think this is one of those things that's going to stand the test of time. So, yeah, I think Rush inherited, well, I mean, Myself and Mac were already fans, but they, they certainly got three new ones in addition. So <laughs> forever fans, lifers here. <laughs> so how did your inclusion in A Night for Neil come about? You know what? We heard about it. I, like, you know, you're always out doing promotion things on, on social media. And I, I heard about it on Twitter because they had sent out a thing. And I'm, I'm part of a bunch of Rush um, like a Rush community, the Rush family actually on Twitter. And it's a wonderful community, by the way, I'm just going to toss in that there's some, some of the nicest, kindest people online are Rush fans. Yep. Um, 
and and audio files. Like they're not just Rush. I mean, I, I think anybody who listens to Rush has good taste in music, frankly. But you know, these people are just it's such a warm, it's truly a family, you know, they want to talk about music. Nobody's attacking anybody about anything. Um, they're very supportive. Um, they're open to other people's interpretations of the, of Russia's music. You know, it's a, it's a anyway. It's a wonderful community. I just want to give a shout out to some wonderful people. But uh, through that community is how I heard about the Overtime Angels charity and that they were putting on this memorial concert. And I, I actually just I just sent them an email. I was like, so. Uh, we just made an album and we're really big fans and Rush gave us permission and here it is. I just sent the thing and please, if you can listen to it and they're like, oh yeah, we saw that on YouTube when you launched it. It was awesome. We'd love to have you. And, and it was so cool to, you know, um, suddenly you're like, oh, you've been included. And through them and the, the release of our album, we were invited to take part in the uh, Peart Memorial Golf Tournament, which was super fun. Oh, wow. Um, I have now attended it two times. I have won two prizes. The first one was for being the first golfer to hit my ball in the trees because it was in the trees. Uh. <laughs> Got a great prize for that. And then I was the first golfer to hit my ball in the water. <laughs> you, sound, you sound like a golfer like me. <laughs> yeah. I'm talented. I'm telling you. <laughs> anyway, um, and so so through the golf tournament, I, I came to get to know a little bit uh, Nancy Peart, Neil's sister. The family are so lovely. It's a beautiful group of people. It's an excellent charity. It's raising money for hospices in, in Muskoka for cancer patients. And um, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. And we were so honored and humbled to be a part of that and be included in that. Yeah. And that, and then next up is this wonderful concert. I don't even know who all is playing. I recently had a chat with uh, the head sound guy and he said, you know, there's going to be about four hours of music. So oh. be prepared. It's going to be a big show. <laughs> That's got to be something yeah. to perform this song, not only in front of the Rush fans, but in front of Neil's family. That's going to be quite a moving experience for you, I'm sure. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's like the, these moments in life, this is what, in a sense, I mean, it, it sounds really cheesy, but you prepare for these things your whole life. If you, if you decide you want to be a musician and you want to be a performer, I don't know, for me, it's one of the most meaningful things to, because uh, I personally believe we can change the world with music. I do. I think we can make the world a better place. And being included in a show like this, where we get to honor a band of musicians who do feel the same way, you know, is such an honor and it's a huge privilege. And um, it's like one of those once in a lifetime moments. Like I said, you like we work our whole lives to be musicians and you get this, this sort of golden opportunity to share your absolute joy and appreciation for the gift that these other musicians have put out into the world that you've grown up listening to, and then to be allowed to kind of give a little bit back to, to the, their family and, and their fans is like, yeah, I don't know. I don't even have the right words. There's no words for that. You'll have to come and hear it in the show. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are there any plans to do maybe a couple of other Rush songs? Not that 2112 isn't long enough, but. Yeah, you know what? I, I would love, because I love Power Windows, I would do any song off that album. But we've been asked to do Villa Estrangetto, which Whoa. will be, we'll see. I, <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would be pretty cool if we did that one. In my my nerd brain right now, I, I just want to do Marathon. It's my favorite oh, song mm. of, of Rush. I know it's like some people are a little bit hard on the 80s era, but I love that song. That song has gotten me through a lot of interesting moments in my own life. And yeah, so that might be the next song that, that I do, even just for myself to arrange. But When you said Power Windows, I immediately thought Manhattan Project for you guys. Yeah, I don't know why. Me. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That would be cool. That would be cool. Yeah, we've heard from a lot of people. You know, there's a stereotype of like a certain type of Rush fan who loves the old stuff. Yeah. We, there are so many people who love the 80s stuff, who put Hold Your Fire as their favorite album or Power Windows as their favorite album. Right. So you're not alone in loving the 80s stuff. This is true. I, it seems to me that, that Rush fans pick an era, you know. Yeah. But... Uh, I, you know, honestly, though, the last album that they did is one of my favorites, too. The Clockwork Angels album is, is absolutely gorgeous, you know. And um, gosh, you know, I, I've completely lost track of the time because it's, you know, COVID erased a year. <laughs> but sometimes it was during COVID, I, I think, um, two years ago, I had a chat with a uh, Another podcaster, and we, we both read, uh, his name's Steve Deshaun, and it was um, Wanderings and Wool Gatherings podcast, actually. Great podcast. Um, also huge Rush fans. And we, um, as the project, we sort of, we, we got the book and we read the book and listened to the, to, to the album and sort of discussed how the, the music and the, the book kind of meshed together. It was kind of fun. But that album is, um, I don't know if Neil Peart had a sense of things or if the band had a sense of things when they were recording it, they probably must have, but the garden is one of those songs, like for the longest time, I couldn't even listen to it. You know, it was uh, like, ah. <laughs> and now it's just, it's like, it's gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful things ever written. So um, yeah. Yeah. All the, all the various eras have been pretty cool. So what were your thoughts, Liza, when you first saw the Clockwork Angels String Ensemble perform live? What did you think? I was jealous. <laughs> <laughs> if I was to be honest, I was jealous. But um, only, only temporarily. I think it's awesome. I think any, any band that's, that's going to involve other musicians, particularly classical, you know, because we've got a lot to offer. And a lot of classical musicians are... are audiophiles too and we're all listening to everything and we love to have these conversations and and it's it's so fun to be asked to be a part of anything you know like that so i'm sure that the musicians that were hired to be part of that orchestra were like over the moon and it would have been super fun i mean the in the videos that i've watched of them playing they're all like laughing and having a great time like really getting into it i mean how could you not it looks great <laughs> so yeah but i was if i i was jealous I'm like i could do that <laughs> that's okay well that's one of the great things about rush in general right because who 
who would do something like that? What rock band is doing something like that, especially at the end of their career, right? 40 years in. Right. Let's shake it up one more time. Why not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can. And their music is, uh, it it allows for it. They're they're writing. Like one of the things that I found when I was working on the arrangement was how orchestral it actually is. And, you know, that's the joke. I mean, it's just three musicians, three. And there's so much going on in this music that it's easily covered by five musicians on stage. And that's that's a string quartet with all the various strings at our disposal. I mean, I've heard an actual orchestral arrangement of 2112. And uh, it's so great. It sounds amazing. It sounds like, well, this works, you know. And then adding an orchestra to virtually any Rush song, like, it just fits in. It fits in because it's written in the way. I don't think they did it on purpose. I think it's just where their minds go when they're when they're writing. But uh, it's such interesting music. It's never just kind of a straight thing, unless they want it to be. In which case, right. that's awesome, you know. But they're always very. There's always an intention behind what they do, right? Like um, if it's going to be straight, it's for a reason. It's not just because. Well, that's just how. You know, it's another rock song, right? Right. Yeah, the songs are dance with musical ideas, right? Yeah. Throughout. Yeah. So, Liza, this podcast will be released on October 3rd. Any other shows upcoming for the David Quartet other than A Night for Neil in October? Uh, Honestly, we're in the thick of just rehearsing and making (laughs) sure that we don't make a fool of ourselves. (laughs) 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 Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not kidding. Um, We want to make sure that we're absolutely ready. So we're not doing anything between now and the show. We're actually just kind of in this like bubble. We've actually got, I should mention this because our lead violinist isn't able to join us for this performance because um, it was rescheduled so many times because mm-hmm. that's what ended up happening. And so she has another concert conflicting that she just can't get out of. And so our good friend, David Barrett, I don't know if you uh, oh yeah, uh, ex wonderful guitarist and sweet sweet human being is going to be taking her place and joining us on stage. So we're actually literally in a couple of days we're going to be getting together with him and and um, making sure that we're all uniformly playing everything, covering everything, um, and he's just going to cover a few holes that need to be filled with with Emily's absence. And where can Rush fans find your music, Liza, if they want to purchase it? I know you have a new album out as well, right? We, we do. We do have a new album. Um, it's all in the, the usual places. We have it up on Spotify if you're into streaming, and it's in Apple Music, iTunes, if you wish to download and purchase it. We're on a waiting list to get it pressed into an actual LP record. Again, thank you, COVID, for you know disrupting the supply chain. Um, <laughs> Hopefully we'll have that album out. Like it's going to be a good six months to a year before the physical copy of our new album comes out. But when we're at the show on the, on October 22nd, we will have physical copies of our 2112 album available uh, at the merch stand. So at least there's that. If anybody would like a hard copy on a, in a beautiful, the album itself is gorgeous. Like the, the artwork is really fun and you open up the thing and the, the album itself is purple with blue swirls. It's, it's really beautiful. <laughs> so, but yeah, as far as physical copies, it's going to be a while, but yeah, easily found all downloadable and everything is uh, www.davidbarrett.com. 
Deva, D-E-V-A-H, quartet.com or, you know, our band name on Spotify and iTunes, Apple Music. Well, Jerry and I can't wait to see you perform at a night for Neil. Thanks for creating this amazing cover of 2112. And thanks for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, Jerry, the more I learn about this night for Neil show, the more I can't wait to see this show. I know. Proposed four hours. That's going to be great. I'm in for four hours. Yes, am I. What else do we have to do? We're there. (laughs) We got nothing else to do. We're not driving home till the next day, right? That's right. I said, bring it on. (laughs) I wanted to mention, if you want to learn more about A Night for Neil, you can listen to some of our previous podcasts, Jer. Yep. Episode 161, we talked to Lance Caston, who was the vice president of Overtime Angels. Mm -hmm. Brandon Dyke, who will be performing at A Night for Neil. He joined us on episode 102. Jacob Moon, who will also be performing at A Night for Neil, he joined us on episode 72. And Lance told us that Howard Ungerleader is going to be doing the lighting for the Mm -hmm. show. And he joined us way back on episode 47. Those are some great plugs, Steve. That was... That might've been better than all of your segues. That was great. Oh, uh, and I, you know, I had to ask her about the clockwork angel string ensemble. I know what she yeah. was going to say that she was jealous, but she had to be right. Yeah, it's true. I mean that, I guess if you want to learn more about the clockwork angels string ensemble, you can listen to our episode where we <laughs> talked to Johnny Dinklage, right? I don't know what number that was. Jared wasn't prepared <laughs> for that one. I don't remember what number it was either, but. You can find us on Twitter. We're at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Liza McClellan. The bass intro and outro, that is Lex. And the quote, that is Jerry. Sure, it's obvious what I'm quoting from, right, Steve? <laughs> I think so. We've taken care of everything, the words you read, the songs you sing, the pictures that give pleasure to your eye. One for all and all for one. Work together, common sons never need to wonder how or why. Thanks, Jer. Talk to you soon. All right, see you later. Mm-hmm.